Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Spamming Zero. I am so excited about today. Today we're joined by one of the most iconic figures in the customer experience world, Matt Dixon, founder of a partner of DCM Insights. He is the co-author of Effortless Experience and many other books. Yeah, that's right. The fourth book is coming in September. Man, I can't even imagine. We're going to talk about that a little bit. DCM Insights is a boutique advisory firm leveraging data to improve their sales and customer experience. If you're interested in that, reach out to Matt. We'll provide the details in the show notes so that you can have those. Welcome to the show. I'm James. And I'm Brian. And this is Spanning Zero. James Brian, it's great to be here. These guys gave me a reprieve uh, last time. I was um, I was just overcoming my second bout with COVID, and um, and I I couldn't make it. I wanted to make it, but I left you guys hanging. So I appreciate the invite back uh, to to make up for it. I'm glad you're on the up and up and in yeah. good spirits. Um, Matt, you speak all over the world. You're a high level keynote speaker for many many different people. So I would like for you to just give us. You know, let's let the audience get to know you on a personal level that they might not. So let's yeah. start with just some random questions. Uh -huh. What's a guilty pleasure that you have? Oh gosh, uh, guilty. I am. Uh, so I'm a I'm a craft beer fan. So I, um, you know, I've got a <laughs> I got a lot of like LinkedIn followers, but um, I don't have as many followers on Untapped, which is like a beer rating app. You guys may be familiar with, but I've. That's probably my guilty pleasure is um, I really like a good IPA and um, it's a little bit like drinking a loaf of bread. So it's probably not the best thing in the world for you, but, um, but I love beer tasting. I, I'm fascinated by microbreweries. So uh, kind of my guilty pleasure. Good for the soul, if not for the there body. Go. There you go. <laughs> so you're, you're out yep. in the wild every day speaking with different companies. There's a lot happening at a macro level yep. right now. I'm curious, what what are the biggest things that you're seeing as you talk to the leaders in these different companies right now? So, uh, you know, it's uh, as I think as your um, your listeners may know, and as you got you guys know, I've kind of in my career I've worn two hats. I I focused on both customer experience and customer service, and also on sales effectiveness that's been like my other so it's funny because people like people at x4 are like oh effortless experience customer effort score like that's what but then i show up at another conference and those people at, at like at a customer experience conference are always like what's the challenger sale like i didn't even know that was the thing you know then i go to like a sales event and they're like what's the customer effort score what's the effortless experience so it's always like i'm toggling <laughs> between these two things but i think there's this um interesting intersection uh brian and it's um it's coming up of late oh, like over the last couple of years you know this funny thing happened in like in march of 2020 in the sales world sales went completely virtual overnight now for companies like yours and for fat you know fast moving tech companies sales was happening largely on zoom or teams or you know whatever web conferencing platform anyway but for you know large companies that was a huge shift in the way they did business and I think there's there's been this this kind of interesting phenomenon that's happened. So companies got like they were doing more sales meetings, but I don't know that they were becoming more effective. And they felt like they were missed, like something was missing in those virtual sales interactions. And one of the trends we actually started to track in sales 
was the every year it felt like an increasing percentage of deals when we talked to sales leaders were being lost to no decision. What I mean specifically by that, it's not, you know, salespeople lose, they don't lose all their, they don't win all their deals. We know that. So imagine like the average salesperson converts like 25 to 30% of their opportunities, but you look at the rest of them and those, and you look at the losses specifically, and the average salesperson would tell you they're way more likely to lose to no decision than to a named competitor. And this is something that we've been tracking and it's gotten worse like every year over the past three years. And it's like the number one thing that I'm talking to company executives right now about because it's in a world where, you know, budgets are getting tight, companies have gone from like blitz scaling to now trying to be like very efficient with their go-to-market spend and their resource allocation. They're preparing for the coming storm. And there's a lot of hand-wringing and nervousness right now and when people start to dig into the numbers, they realize that like anywhere between 40 to 60% of their time, their, their salespeople are taking a customer through the entire sales process. They're eating up you know, massive amounts of their own seller's time, as well as the time of their organization. They're subject matter experts, they're solutions engineers, they're doing paid, you know, pilots, they're doing proof of concept trials, they're doing reference calls, they're doing demos out the wazoo, you know, iterations of proposals, you know, tons of, uh, of interactions with the client. And this is to say nothing of all the client's time and energy they're putting against this. And then to go through that entire process only to do nothing. And so companies look at this and they're like, that was painful when things were good. It's really painful when things start to get kind of tight. And the other problem with indecision and no decision is like, it's just going to get worse when the economy starts to take, you know, a nosedive. People are starting going to, they're going to become much more prone to do nothing. And so when I'm out there talking to companies, I think they're taking a really hard look at their go-to-market uh, resource allocation. And that's one of the real like warts on like in any sales organization and sales leaders like, we've got to do something about this. We've got to lose earlier. We've got to get, teach our salespeople to stop chasing garbage trucks. And we've got to figure out why is it that our customers go through like a six month sales process and then don't pull the trigger. Even though they said they wanted to move forward, they do nothing. And how do we teach our salespeople to get those customers over the line? So that's actually what, we spent two years studying this problem. It's what the new book is all about, uh, the jolt effect. But I think a lot is it's, I think it's kind of this intersection of like customer experience and sales effectiveness, because really what the book is about is, is about the sales experience. And I think when you get down to it, what leads customers to do nothing is fear of failure and it's specific things they're worried they're going to go wrong. And salespeople are just not tuned into this stuff. They're not seeing things from the customer's perspective. And so they just hammer them with like, their proof points, their messaging, their success stories, their ROI calculators, you know, their demos. And it just rings hollow for the customer. It doesn't get them comfortable with the decision. It doesn't instill any confidence. And it's, it's very similar to what we wrote about in the effortless experience. You know, we all think that it's about delighting customers and giving them free stuff and wowing them at every turn. But it's actually what the customer really wants is for you to make it easy for them. And, and this is very similar, right? It's a similar story. And so I think what's so interesting is what resonated about the effortless experience for CX and service leaders and CMOs and CEOs is we looked at the customer experience, but from the customer perspective, what is it that they're really looking for from the companies they do business with? In this new book, we're doing something very similar, which is we're looking at the sales experience, but from the customer's perspective, what are they experiencing as they're going through this? And, and what is it that leads to these bad outcomes? And, and what do salespeople need to know to be more effective? Yeah, I'll look at you guys. I get you uh, for sure. I'm serious, Matt. Like this is something that I have been vocally complaining about in social media. 
Like my, I, I we, sometimes when we're on the show, we ask people like, Oh, tell me about a, an experience that you dream about. And you know what mine is like that. I never have to talk to sales again and I can buy <laughs> stuff. That's a... Right. Yeah, I, mean, like, I don't think you're alone there. You know, I know these community. It's that you can buy the way you want to buy. Sometimes you might want to talk to somebody and then you want to, be able to talk to them. It's just, you don't want to be, you don't want to be stuffed into their boxes and their frameworks and See, their and that's, processes. That is it. That's the key, right? Like there's so many other, I mean, some of these communities with a bunch of other folks that are at similar levels and they're decision makers, they have a P&L, like they have a budget, right? Like for folks that are at that level, like just let them buy and don't get in the way and provide like a, to your point, uh, an effortless experience. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's really interesting. We, um, in the new book, we talk about, there's this fascinating story. I don't know if you guys have been like tracking this over time, but one of the industries that we, we find really fascinating, it's something that, that we write about in the new book. It's something that, um, we used to talk about a lot when I was at CEB with, with some of my research partners there, Brent Adamson, Nick Toman, and some of the team over there. And one of the, one of the trends we were tracking over time is this really fascinating kind of uh, rise and fall of the travel agency. So this is a really fascinating business story where, you know, in the early 2000s, the mom and pop travel agency, almost like that business absolutely disappeared like from the face of the earth and it was because of the rise of like travelocity and expedia and orbits and all these ability the ability for consumers to like book their own travel it's like now i don't need to go through the middleman who's going to charge me a you know a service fee to book my plane ticket if i know where i want to go i know where i want to stay i can just book it myself right and it's super efficient um, but what also happened in the intervening years is that the amount of information available to travelers just exploded so I think I, I, I'm, if memory serves, I think the first post on TripAdvisor was right around the same time. It was like, like 99, 2000, uh, some, something like that. It was right around that time. And they just, I think they just posted their billionth review or something like that. I'm like, and so it's funny because if you go to plan, think about today, right? Um, you go to plan a trip, especially if it's someplace you've never been before, and you go to TripAdvisor or you Google like, hey, I'm planning a honeymoon to Italy or I'm planning a trip to um, to Costa Rica or where we have Thailand or whatever, and you've never been before. It's like there is no way in a million years you could get through all that information. And then you start wringing your hands about this is a lot of money, right? This is a big decision. Like I'm taking like this is our honeymoon or I'm taking this is a really expensive family trip or it's a special occasion, a once in a lifetime trip. Like I don't want to mess it up. What do I pick? Where do I stay? Where do I go? What should I avoid? What are the do's and don'ts? There are no shortage of opinions. There is so much information that in like 10 lifetimes, you can never consume it all. So what do you want in that situation? What you want is a really great travel agent. Somebody who's, or as they call themselves today, travel advisors, right? Somebody who's been there before, who's booked trips like this, who says, ask you a few questions and says, you know what? I, you're in good hands. I'm going to plan everything. Now I know what you like. I know what you don't like. I got the itinerary for you. You're going to go here. You're going to do that. I'm going to arrange the transfers. You're going to eat at this restaurant. You're going to love it. You're going to fly in on this day. You're going to spend a day here. You're going to, you know, boom, boom, boom. And you go and you're just like, that was amazing. And I didn't have to read a gazillion TripAdvisor reviews. I didn't have to read all these blog posts. And what's so interesting is like today's salespeople are very much like that, but or the best salespeople, I would say, James, but I think the average salespeople are not, right? They're just, they're just beating you over the head with like, buy this, buy that. And like, 
you know, um, trying to scare you into buying, but the very best understand that their job is less to sell to the customer. It's almost more to buy for the customer. How do I take you by the hand and act like a great travel agent, help you sift through all this information, make a great decision and give you the confidence you need to move forward. Like that kind of sales experience people are looking for, but it's so rarely delivered today that, you know, it's when it happens, it's just like, whoa, what was that? It's so different. That is so good. And you're talking about it from the lens of information overload. I think that it also exists, right? People, there's, right, people say all the time, it's easier to build a yep. SaaS product today than it has ever been. And what that results in is there, there are more products than there yep. have ever been. Right, and like try and try and create a market map around anything at this point, and it's like you're just listening. You're you're listening to things that you know about that you've seen, but there's probably fifty other things that you haven't. And by the way, it's one, it's five hundred, right? Because there's like five more, like more things that appeared in the (laughs) last five minutes, right? So, and then you're seeing so much of what goes hand in hand with this when it comes to like you see a lot in B two B SaaS world is everybody's buying from like communities and from recommendations and from those sorts of things, which is right. A a kind of informal and it exists right in the travel example also, right? You go to, go to a friend that's been there or they know somebody that's been there and you do it informally versus formally, but it's like the options have been unleashed and now it's a different sort of problem that is being solved in almost a, you're, no, you're 100% right. So the um, we so we actually um, starting about two years ago, you know, we took advantage of this, I think, arguably once in a lifetime opportunity to study sales in a very unique way because sales was all virtual. You know, it used to be that studying sales conversations was hard because the important ones happened in the client's office and they don't invite guys like me to those meetings. <laughs> like it's just they're, no, they're not inviting sales. They're not recording those conversations. They're not inviting sales researchers to sit around, take notes and observe until the pandemic rolled around and and all sales went virtual. And when that happened, we were like, this may never happen again. So we partnered with several dozen companies and we actually collected two and a half million recorded sales calls and used machine learning to study them. We used the platform at Tether where my co-author Ted McKenna and I were working. The new book is called The Jolt Effect, How High Performers um, Overcome Customer Indecision. And it comes out in September and you're 100% right, Brian. So what we found is there were three things, three reasons that customers end up doing nothing, three three reasons that cause them to become indecisive. Um, the first one, uh, information overload, we talked about. The second one was actually exactly what you said. We called it uh, valuation problems. So this is, this is not about the amount of information, it's about the amount of product and the number of options. So if we think about any, think about SaaS products, a great example uh, to your point, the market map in any space is like littered with companies, the vast majority of which you've never heard of. And think, how often does this happen to the salesperson where you're moving down the path, you're in the final stages, and the customer says, oh, my colleague was just at a conference and ran into this other company. We'd never heard of them before. Or we saw this on the Gardner Magic Quadrant. We never heard of these guys before. We want to do a demo with them. We just can't leave any stone unturned. Like, we got to do, we got to do our homework, right? And then even if they decide they want to do business with you, Think about all the permutations of your own product, like the basic version, the premium version, the like platinum version. You've got contract length. You've got number of seat licenses. You can go broad. You can go narrow. Think about all the partner integrations we offer. Think about the roadmap that we put in front of the customer with all the new bells and whistles coming down the pipe. And it's the customer looking at this proposal thinking, 
oh, what if I pull the trigger on, like all these options sound great. What if we pull the trigger on the wrong thing and that's an, irre- that's an irreversible decision? So that was the second source of indecision. The third one was actually what we call outcome uncertainty, which is you know, when the customer says, boy, your demo was awesome, the proof of concept was great, the reference calls, your customers love you, you guys are like top box in the Gardner Magic Quadrant, the Force of Wave, like love you guys, it's awesome, it looks great. Except for there's this little voice in the back of their head that's saying, what if we're the one company for whom this whole thing goes sideways and somebody's got to like pay the piper and heads are going to roll and whose head's going to roll first? It's the person whose name is on the DocuSign or like the contract. And that's me, right? So it's like the, the fear that they're going to be left holding the bag, that they won't get the benefits they expect from your solution. So it's those three things, information overload, I don't evaluation problems, I don't know what to pick. And then I'm going to be left holding the bag. Those are the three things that cause customers to get cold feet. And the problem is the average salesperson when the customer starts hemming and hawing, the, customer, the salesperson has been taught the only reason that the customer's stuck, that they're not making decisions, you have not beaten their status quo. You haven't proven to them that what they do today is suboptimal, or you haven't convinced them that your solution is a better alternative. So they go back and they like hammer the customer with like proof points and ROI calculations and references and case studies and success profiles and all these things. Or when the customer doesn't budge, they start to scare them into action, like dialing up the FUD, right? Create that burning platform. Like, you know, these problems are gonna solve themselves. Check out your competitors. They're gapping you in the market. Like you guys, you told me earlier, your team hates you for making them use that legacy solution. And we try to scare them to move forward. But those things like, I didn't do enough homework. I don't know what to pick or I'm gonna be left holding the bag have nothing to do with their preference for the status quo. So it falls on deaf ears at best. And at worst in our research, we found when salespeople go back and hammer the status quo with the customers actually worried about something else, they actually make it more likely the customer's not going to do anything. They make, they're better off saying nothing in that moment and just like letting the customer figure it out on their own. I was just going to say, right. If there's a, if there's a disconnect and like a, a lack of trust that is forming and then suddenly the buyer is saying one thing and the seller's coming in with a hammer that is unrelated yeah. to the thing that you're trying to build, then it's like, oh my God, this person is really not on the same page as me. And, and yep. I, I'm I don't glad, trust them I'm, and I don't, I'm not going to take their advice, right? I'm glad you framed it up as lack of trust though, because mm-hmm. here, here's what I what I think. And I, by the way, I don't have like a, a million sales calls under my belt to like make this claim um, by any means. So just know that. Well, you've but, been on enough that I'm sure it's... <laughs> I, I have been on a lot, no doubt. And I do do talk to a lot of other CMOs that you know, buy a lot of software and there is so much automation in the sales process that has created what I will call, uh, non-trust moments or whatever you want to like frame it up as, but like a good example. And I give this one all the time. I am very real about who I'm a fan of. Yeah. By the way, I didn't tell you I'm representing uh, a senior, so I I forgot to show you my shirt. Yeah, I like it. I I, I will pander to any audience, but I didn't do this on purpose. It's just And and how about in 2020 when everyone had to go to, like, video conferencing? Yeah. And there's little nuggets of information behind us in every phone call that we have with people. Yeah. And there's all this, like, personal detail that exists in our social media accounts. And... I talk about this all the time. This is a, a real true story. And I've, and even though I talk about it as much as I have, it still is unchanging with how much volume comes our way from a sales process. 
I even put on my LinkedIn that I'm a massive Utah Jazz fan. I have hats on every video call that I'm on that's Utah Jazz. I post stuff about my family in Utah Jazz gear. (laughs) I, like, am proactively flaunting this stuff. And guess how many times out of uh, out of probably hundreds of sales calls it's been used? Probably used counted on one hand, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. He's holding three up three digits, folks. Times. <laughs> three times. Yeah, exactly. That blows my mind. Yeah. Right. So, like, when you think about those three areas that you are framing up in your book, right, with Jolt, and I think it's fantastic, but I'm also like, how much of those could be prevented by just a little bit of homework and personalization. Cause I know most people, yeah. it goes a, a long, long ways. It for sure. It, it, that, I, I mean, I, I think in some respects, that's just like laziness and not using some of the information right in front of you. But I, and I, I wouldn't be empathetic here because I think, you know, salespeople are really busy, but we can kind of slip into this just mode and like wash, rinse and repeat way of doing things. And and a little bit of effort would go a very long way when you can make that kind of personal connection. But you know, what's interesting is that the trust point you mentioned before, like none of what we talk about in the book, like how do you shift to become a buyer's agent, right? To like a trusted, like your travel agent for your customer, which is where we want to be. The only thing that makes that work, like there's this problem in sales, which is the agency dilemma which is that there's an information asymmetry that always exists between the customer and the salesperson. The, the customer's never going to know like the, where the bodies are buried. They're never going to know all the problems with the solution. They're never going to know as much as the salesperson does about the decision they're being asked to make. They're just they're not on a level playing field. And the problem is most salespeople don't invest the time to level the playing field and to overcome that agency dilemma. And we found in, in interestingly, we found in the the analysis of the two and a half million sales calls that best salespeople will do things, and, and sometimes these are subtle things, but they're huge confidence givers that tell the customer, this person is not trying to oversell me. They are trying to make help me make a great decision here. Their primary motivation is not selling me and closing the deal and making money. Like I'm sure that's important to them. Their primary motivation is they want me to be thrilled with what I buy from them and to come back and rave about the solution. And so what you see is this appears in, in small ways. So here's an example, you know, in a number of these calls, we would find these really high performing salespeople saying, and, and I'm not making this up, but saying in a, a conversation with the customer, once they're diagnosing needs and they're talking about what the customer's looking for saying, you know, we would love to help you with that. And trust me, we would love to do business with you and add your logo to our brag sheet of, of customers. Like you guys would be a great customer for us to have, but I can be honest, that's not our area of expertise. We can do that pretty well, but you know our competitor is actually much better at that than we are. In fact, I know a bunch of the folks over there would be happy to put you in touch with them. Like for a salesperson to proactively suggest to the customer, like, I don't really think that our solution is the right solution for you, is like, and, and almost invariably the customer would say, well, actually, no, no, we really do like what you guys stand for. And I, I want to learn more about you, but I, I really appreciate your candor here. Or for example, here's another uh, time this came up. You know, customers sometimes they're, you guys have seen this before, but their eyes get bigger than their stomachs. Like they want the all singing, all dancing solution. And what you found is best salespeople will overcome that agency dilemma, that, that agency bias, if you will, by suggesting to the customer things that they shouldn't spend money on. You know, I know you guys want this uh, capability, 
but it's pretty expensive. And where you are with our solution, I just don't think you need it right now. Let's think about that in year two, but I want to be a good steward of your budget. And I don't want anybody looking at this and saying, we spent too much money for the value we got back. Like, or here's a last example I'll give you guys. This is really surprising. Top salespeople are much more likely to suggest that the customer, they start small rather than going enterprise wide. So your average performer, like when the customer starts talking about like, you know what, like the pilot was great, but we got to roll this out across the entire organization. And like the price point of the deal goes from a hundred thousand dollars to a million dollars. It's like your average performer is like, oh my goodness, I'm going to Cancun. This is going to be the greatest thing in the world. Like, I'm going to make presidents clubs and be awesome. <laughs> but your high performer will say, you know, I would love to sell you that deal, but I've, I also know enough to say that like that deal is going to take a really long time to get everyone on board. And here's the other thing is it's going to put a lot of pressure on you. And what I want is to land and I want to land and expand. I want to start small and I want to get some runs on the board and I want to make you look like a hero so that we have tons of support to go broad. We don't have to do it right now because it's going to be hard for you to get buy-in for that. And it's going to put tons of pressure on you. So let's start in this one use case or this one part of the business. Let's go from there. You know, so they actually ultimately sell more by selling less upfront, but your, your average performers, like when they, when the customer starts talking up the, the size of the deal are like all about it. They're like, this is going to make my year. It's amazing. So you're, you're talking through all this and I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about like, what do solutions look like? Like what is, what does a business change based on these things? A couple of just like rapid fire that are coming to my mind and give it the old yes, no, or me, but not really. Decisions, right, at least decisions that are made with the head are done by looking at impact, effort, and certainty, right? How much do I stand to gain? How much effort is it going to take me? And what's the likelihood that it happens? Does this, like, indecision make it, like, a solution is make it really easy for people to get started? And is this, like, a point in the bucket of, like, PLG and that sort of motion? That's question number one. Idea and thought and question number two is, is this like a tailwind effect for like consultancies and like master agents and like those sort of people that are right in a way like a travel agent for yeah. buying software and solutions? And then the third thing is, should salespeople be comped on retention and like lifetime value and like NRR and less comped on the dollars on that first yeah this is like uh it just reminds me of the scene in uh back to school where rodney dangerfield's taking that exam is that and uh the professor gets up he's like i have one question he's like oh great in 38 parts and it's like, <laughs> 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 um, well let me try to get through i can try to get through some of that stuff so i think it's really interesting because brian you're not the only person who's brought up plg and master agents Sales comp is like a third rail uh, question. <laughs> I don't know if I'll go there. I have a kind of very radical view on that one. We can talk about, talk about that a little bit, which is should salespeople be variably comped at all? Um, which I think is an interesting question to ask, um, but it's, it's something that gets me lots of hate mail. So I, I won't go there. Should we jump straight to <laughs> We'll the get there button? in a second. But, but I, <laughs> well, let me tell you, I'll give you a couple. Um, I think your, your point out PLG and mass rate is a really good one. And um, I'll just tell you guys quickly. So Jolt, is actually an acronym for the four behaviors we found that best salespeople use. Um, J is judge the level of indecision. In in a nutshell, what we found is you've got to you've got to qualify and disqualify an opportunity not just on their ability to buy, like use case fit, availability budget, you know, uh, consensus for the purchase, things like that. 
um, but also on their the customer's ability to decide. And so you've got to actually look beyond what's on paper and what can be readily observed, like you know, on Zoom info or or some you know LinkedIn or whatever. You've got to dig into like this person's ability to make a decision. So you've that's where active listening comes in, and, and we find that salespeople are very good at picking up signals very early on about whether this person is actually able to make a decision. Are they naturally indecisive or naturally decisive? Which gives them a sense of like how much of their own time and energy they should put into it. The O is offer your recommendation. So salespeople have been taught to die, you know, when the customer doesn't know what they want, ask them what they want, you know, diagnose their needs. We found that best salespeople are really good at shifting from asking the customer what they want to telling them what they should buy. Like, you know what? Customers like you are really happy with this and here's why. And just forget the other stuff. Let's go here. Trust me. But getting that right and being able to do that requires overcoming that agency bias we talked about before. The L is limiting the exploration. So customers are going to want to consume information until the cows come home. At some point, you got to call a stop to the endless spinning of wheels. How do you do that? Um, how do you instill the confidence with the customer that you know more than they do and that they're in good hands with you? They don't need to be an expert. They're talking to a travel advisor. You've been there and done that and you've got their best interests in mind. And then the T is taking risk off the table. So remember that outcome uncertainty, like when the customer's hand is hovering over the contract or they're about to click yes on the, or do their digital signature on the DocuSign and they're worried about being left holding the bag, what are those confidence givers you can share with them? Everything from in some situations, opt-out clauses to other situations like using professional services and laying out project plans and KPIs you're gonna track and pulling the customer success team in early so that you can instill that confidence that like, we've done this a thousand times. We know exactly what can go wrong and that what likely will go wrong. You are not gonna be left holding the bag. You're not jumping out of a plane without a backup chute. Like we're here, we've got your back. So that's the that's the jolt um, acronym. Those are the four behaviors. But I think you're right because other people I've talked to said, it feels like PLG would be a great approach to allow the customer to try before they really go all in, right? Uh, dip their toe in the water, experience the product a little bit uh, before they commit a ton of resources. Master agents, you're right, those people who are like working across a portfolio of technologies and solution providers to be able to advise this client, you know what? For you guys, it's this configuration, it's this ecosystem you should be you should be fishing from, not, not over here, instills that confidence. So I think you're spot on there. I'll tell you on the, on the hot button issue, the, the comp piece, one of the things I think that um, all sales leaders should read is um, Dan Pink's book, Drive, which is about how as, you know, monetary compensation, like paying people, like rewarding people with, with variable comp, for instance, actually works really well in environments of like simple work. But as work becomes more complicated, as we ask our salespeople to shift from selling products to selling solutions, they don't get as motivated by monetary incentives. What they get motivated by is the ability to um, have autonomy, mastery, and purpose in their job. Um, to have autonomy, to be able to make their own decisions, use their own judgment, to be a master or a subject matter expert, uh, um, and to have a sense of purpose. Like, what am I trying to accomplish? What am I trying to help my customers do? Those are the things that actually get the salesperson up at night, or sorry, get them out of bed in the morning, I should say, not keep them up at night, but get them out of bed in the morning. And so you found, I've seen some leading sales organizations start to radically rethink how they compensate salespeople, moving them to compensation packages and plans that look more like what the marketing team is paid on or what the product team is paid on, which is like salary and performance bonus based on how we do as an organization. 
So there's the, the old adage in sales that like salespeople are coin operated and just, just the way they are. There are enough companies out there who are having great success with non-traditional sales comp plans that would call into question that, that view, at least in the world of complex solution selling. But everyone I tell that to is like, that's academically interesting. We're not going to do that. <laughs> so. It's also funny because, right, you get somebody, they start their career in marketing, then they go and do sales, and then they end up learning how to code and becoming an engineer for the last 10 years of their career. And it's like, oh, so they were coin operated for those seven years in the middle, but the rest of the time yeah. they weren't coin driven yeah. or whatever. There, there are a couple of companies. Um, uh, one of them is Microchip that's gone to like no variable comp for salespeople. It's just base and bonus the same way everyone else in the company is compensated. And when they made that move, they that's where they really hit the, you know, uh, the hockey stick inflection point in their company growth. And they've never looked back. Another one, at Cameron Surface Systems, has has um, made a similar change. So there, there are some big companies going in this direction, but it's still kind of like heresy in sales to to say that kind of thing. So, yeah, but here's the thing: I genuinely think that like it would change the behavior that so many of us feel as being a buyer, and mm -hmm. that terrible experience that oftentimes happens. Right? Is yeah. I think it happens because they've got a quota to hit, and like they're livelihood is depending on it then you have the whole idea of like okay well i've got to go out and not only hit this quota but i have my top of funnel sales metrics that i've got to yep. hit as well so i've got to get my dials in i've got to get my emails in i've got to get all those things in so i'm just gonna like flood the gates with automated yeah. messaging and not be personal right. it, it, it also leads to all those bad seller behaviors you talked about before like overselling um, over promising, you know, driving customers to like bigger deals and bells and whistles they don't need, which then leads to churn. It leads to like bad customer experience, at least a purchase regret and backouts and negative reviews and all kinds of like chop on the back end. I think in large part, you're right, James, it's just the, because of the way we pay people and that their livelihoods depend on basically overselling people and getting them to, it, it takes a really confident salesperson to say, you know what, let's, put the million dollar idea on, let's do the hundred thousand dollar and we'll, we'll get to the million dollars over time, but that's not the right thing for us to do. I mean, that takes a lot of gumption for a salesperson to suggest that. All right. So we are, we are at time, Matt. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on, but you cannot get away from answering our last question, By which is <laughs> what is one thing that you would put unlimited resources towards, toward changing the world? Oh my goodness. You don't need to think too big. Remember that James's is he wants to be able to buy software without following the rigid <laughs> process. It's not too heavy. Unlimited resources to change the world. So, I mean, you know, over the past couple of years, it feels like we've been given a lot to think about, even over the last couple of weeks um, around that. But I, I think one of the biggest, like the biggest problems of our time is, uh, is climate, the threat of climate change and, and being able to like, it just feels like we're right there in terms of being able to change the world for the better. And there are certain structural things standing in our way, incentive misalignment. And if like, we could all just like make this push, like you think about the great things that like society has been able to accomplish in history. And like, this is one that just feels like it should be doable. Uh, if we kind of banded together, committed the resources and just like bit the bullet and leave a better world for everyone else. So Ooh, that's a good one. A fiery end to this episode. That is a great That and ending variable conference salespeople. No, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that is the end of the show. Thank you, Matt, for joining us. Thank you, guys. Um, 
If you have not subscribed to the podcast, please do so. We would love to hear from you. If you have open topics that you haven't heard about, reach out to Brian and I, and we would be happy to have you on the show or to talk about a topic that we have not yet talked about. Thanks again. Thanks again.